Good morning. One of the most remarkable aspects, of course, on a weekend like this, a Memorial Day weekend, is that we can see parallels. Because just as many have laid down their lives for our political freedom, there is one who laid down his lives for our eternal freedom, and that's Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to be doing in today's study is we're going to allow ourselves to lift our mindsets to that highest level where we see the interventionist God at work and where grace is to be found. We're doing a two-part series because we're tying it together with Memorial Day weekend where I typically pause in whatever I'm studying with you and look at a battle scene described in the Bible. The battle scene we're describing for our eye sets today is found in Ezekiel, where last week we looked at chapter 38, today we look at chapter 39, a little two-part series called The Battle of Gog and Magog. So I'd love for you to take your uh, Bible and turn in your Older Testament to the 39th chapter, and we're going to be looking today at verse 1 down through the end of the chapter, but I'll be reading from verse 1 down through verse, verse 8. And as you're turning there, what we have in our bulletins is not only inserts to be able to jot down thoughts from this passage, but I also think this is very important. You're going to find in your bulletin maps, maps that describe not only the political boundaries in the time period in which Ezekiel wrote but on the flip side, a political map of 2014, so that when it starts in these verses to describe geographic locations, we're going to be able to pinpoint some of what Ezekiel's writing. So if you have not picked up a bulletin, be sure to do that as we track together as I begin reading now in verse 1 through verse 8. And now God says this via Ezekiel, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will strike your bow with your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand and you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes, and the peoples who are with you. And I will give you to birds of prey for every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I have sent fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. And that is the day of which I have spoken. So we're going to be looking at these words and the other words in this chapter, and we're going to be trying to understand very clearly what God is teaching us about this battle that will take place in the future. 
and try to understand how modern day trends relate to eternal truths that are related here as we bridge last Sunday into today's study. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, what we want to do as we're examining your word is to at the same time be examining our hearts. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinful by nature, but we praise you that Jesus Christ sent the sinless one to die for us. And that the ultimate battle has been fought, and we are to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. We pray that each one here as well in each of these services, has done that. And if not, we'll find our hearts prompted, stirred, moved to put faith and trust in Jesus and him alone. We see a battle scene unfolding, and we see in these verses your sovereignty, your control over all of humanity and over all of time, past, present, future. What we want to do now is to get our arms around what it is that you've described here, how it relates to life, and apply it in a very practical way, personal way, relational way, to make a difference. So in these minutes together, Father, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, for again we've Come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was back in March where Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli prime minister, looking over the scene of what is taking place in the Middle East, simply but profoundly Side utilizing a one-word sentence. Enough. Because as the Israelis were being pressured to be flexible and make painful sacrifices in the interest of so-called giving peace a chance, the news reporters inform us that an Iranian ship was bound for Gaza with a supply of long-range rockets to be used to decimate Jewish communities and to kill Israeli citizens. The Jerusalem Post reported the missiles originated in Syria. Now the Post said, had the shipment not been destroyed, the rockets could have been unloaded at Port Zidane, taken overland through Egypt into Sinai, and through smuggling tunnels into the Gaza Strip. Israelis are constantly searching for these tunnels. Late in 2013, the Israel Defense Forces discovered a a massive Hamas-built attack tunnel that was complete with phone lines and electricity. It was large enough to move great numbers of jihadists and their weapons from Gaza into Israel as Prime Minister Netanyahu says, enough. Now it fascinates us that these Iranian shipments were 
also designed in Russia. Because as we looked last week and began our study in this two-part little series, we noticed that there is a coalition of forces that are described here that will be raised up and will attack Israel. Let's do a quick two-minute review of what we covered from last week. We're in the 38th chapter. We had been informed that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, Son of man, set your face toward Gog. And what we did was we reminded ourselves of some of the ancient writings and how that word was used, G-O-G, and came to the conclusion that it is a title. It is a position, and it is used to describe someone who perhaps in the days of Egypt would have been called Pharaoh, or recently in Russia's past would be called a Tsar, Gog. And this one, called Gog, is informed by God to set his face. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And we notice, furthermore, that the word chief prince carries with it the idea of Rosh and began to do a little study of ethnic stock, trying to understand these things, and then connecting them to verse 5. Where in verse 5, there is a coalition of forces that will come together under the leadership of this one entitled Gog. And these forces will include what in Ezekiel's time were referred to as Persia, Cush, and Put, and so on, which are found, of course, in the list of nations in Genesis 10. When we began to do this little review, we came to the conclusion that Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, were of the uttermost parts on your political map you have in front of you, and referred to, of course, as Russia in the former Soviet republics. Then you got to verse 5. And in verse 5, you notice the name, the word, the country, Persia. And Persia is modern-day Iran. And we saw the ethnic connection between the Russian republics and Iran. And again, remember that Iran, by and large, is, is not Arab. And furthermore, its, its Islamic or, uh, tendencies are toward Shiite rather than Sunni Islam. Then there is Kush, which is modern-day Sudan and Ethiopia. We saw Put in verse 5, Libya, Algeria. We saw Goma and Beth Togama, which pertain to modern-day Turkey. And when you allowed for your eyes to drop down to verse 13 of that 38th chapter, you spotted the countries Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan are part of the modern-day Sinai Peninsula that juts out into the waters. And furthermore, right after that, it describes the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders, which is the southern Persia portion of modern-day Spain. So you're tracking with me, Lord willing, now, as you're using maps and we're thinking together because God is the God of time and God is the God of geography. He's sovereign. So with this in front of us, as Benjamin Netanyahu sighs and says, 
in office, an Iranian movement of, of shipment is making its way towards the borders of Israel and asking ourselves the question, is this Gog-Magog matter really a Russian-slash-Iranian connection where Russian verse 1 and Persia, Iran in verse 5 are connected together? We're going to look now at three significant results that God describes unfolding as a result of this battle that stands before you and stands before me. The first flows out of verse 1 down to verse 8, and we're going to phrase it like this. The number one, as a result of the Gog-Magog war, Israel's opponents are defeated, and God's name is made known. So now you pick it up in this 39th chapter. And you begin with verse 1, and you and I are told, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. And there's Ezekiel now, and he himself, he has been transported along with Daniel, who you know in your Old Testament, to the land of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And they have been moved, these, these young, future, bright leaders, to this foreign land, and they feel exiled from their homeland, the land of Israel. And God allows him, Ezekiel, God the one who stands outside of time and controls all of time, past, present, and future, to see not only his return, so to speak, to the homeland, but to the ultimate return that would take place, as we know, in 1948. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. And say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O Gog. Think Tsar, Pharaoh, political leader. Chief prince, think Rosh, Meshach, Tubal. And what I want you to see now is Israel's opponents on the move and how they're about to be defeated. And notice the sovereign workings of God here. Because he continues to say, I. He's the one in charge, not Gog. Verse 2. And I will turn you about, drive you forward, bring you up, underline this next phrase with your political map in front of you, bring you up from the uttermost parts, you see, of the north. Draw a line northward now from Israel to the uttermost parts, and you see where this leads you. And furthermore, you and I informed and lead you against the mountains of Israel. And for those of you who've had the privilege of traveling in Israel, you know the various mountainous regions. And certainly the borderline countries that are mountainous include Syria and Lebanon and northern Jordan. But then God says this about this oppressive political leader driving this coalition toward Israel. I will strike your bow with your left hand and make your arrows drop out of your right hand. And you say, well, Gary, uh, we're, we're talking 2014 now, and with our modern-day military technology, bows and arrows. But keep this in mind. 
God is writing via Ezekiel in the 500 B.C. time period, utilizing the imagery of military weaponry that Ezekiel had at his disposal. And so we've got to be able to see how the past links to the future in the way in which God pens his thoughts. In verse 4, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes, now, think coalition here. Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, Beth Togarmah from the previous chapter. You and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. So this is a significant major attack where people are descending upon Israel. And notice what God says here. You shall fall in the open field. You see For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Hamas Interior Minister Fadi Hamad recently told Palestinians that they will liberate the entirety of Palestine within eight years. And furthermore, Hamad said that Islamic prophecies foretell that Israel will be replaced with a Palestinian state. So what you and I have to do when we look at the Middle East is to understand that there is an intense religious as well as ethnic tension at stake here. Pray for your political leaders that they understand religious history because that's necessary to be able to work through the dilemmas that are unfolding in front of our very eyes. Now, you have shall fall in the open field. Why? Because God says so. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. He's sovereign in all of this. And furthermore, you and I are informed in verse 6, and I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. And you ask, but Gary, what's the reason for all of this? And the answer is this they shall know that I am the Lord. Have you ever heard of Brother Andrew? He was the founder of Open Doors International and the author of the mega bestseller, God's Smuggler, in which he described his efforts of taking Bibles into lands in which they were closed, closed politically to the idea of Christianity spreading, and furthermore, hearts that were closed to the gospel penetrating the innermost portions of a person. What you and I are fascinated by is that he looks for any way in which a supposed closed door is in fact open. And he means hearts. He speaks of the time where he shared the gospel with Yasser Arafat and Islamic ayatollahs as well in the Palestinian territories surrounding Lebanon. But what captures my attention is the time in which he shared the gospel to 400 Hamas leaders in Gaza City. Here's something of what he says, taken from the book. I can't change the situation you face here in Gaza, he told the Hamas leaders. I can't solve the problems you have with Israel. But I can offer you the one who is called the Prince of Peace. You cannot have real peace without Jesus. 
And you cannot experience him without forgiveness. And he offers to forgive us of all of our sins. But we cannot receive that forgiveness if we don't ask for it. The Bible calls this repentance and confession of sin. If you want it, then Jesus forgives. He forgave me and maybe a new person. And now I'm not afraid to die because my sins are forgiven and I have eternal life, which I pray you have as well. What caught my attention is what comes next. Andrew, I believe you know that I teach at the Islamic University, said one of the professors. To my knowledge, we have never had any lectures about Christianity. While you were talking, I was thinking that it would be helpful for our students to know about real Christianity. Would you consider coming to the university and giving a lecture about the difference between Christianity and Islam? Even the Palestinian Christian leaders who accompanied Brother Andrew to the event were taken aback. I think my God is too small said of the head of the Palestinian Bible Society. I never thought that a Christian could speak to a radical, fanatical fundamentalist of the Islamic persuasion. But even if someone did have a chance, it never occurred to me that they would actually want to sit and listen to the gospel. Today, God showed me how big He really is. Now what you are seeing in these verses is how big your God really is. Because there you have it. In verse 6, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, this battle is highly evangelistic. It is meant to cultivate a personal, not merely informational, knowing God, you see, as G.I. Packer would put it. They shall know that I am the Lord, which is the very same expression that was used in the days in which Moses was challenged by God to speak to Pharaoh with regard to the plagues that were going to come down upon the land so that they might know that I alone am the Lord God, the exclusive Yahweh, you see. Well, you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, Gary, The opponents here are obviously defeated. Talk to me for a few seconds about how God's name then is made known. Well, we'll let God answer that. Because here now in verse 7 and verse 8, he informs us, and my holy name I will make known. In other words, this is God's sovereign doings. It doesn't say merely that Israel will make him known or that evangelists will make him known. But the primary source is God himself. And he's going to use this as a means of arousing people's attention. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. 
and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Question. We'll stop right there. Answer. No. Because furthermore, you and I are informed, and the nations, plural, shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So then, Israel is always called to be a light to the nations. It's not meant to be a reservoir of truth, but rather a channel of grace. And likewise, when we study God's word week by week, it's not so we might become reservoirs of truth, just keeping it all within, but rather channels of grace, sharing the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. All of this, then, speaks clearly of the way in which God is sovereignly involved and at work. Back to current events. Bowing to Arab pressure, a UN agency at the last minute canceled an exhibit due to open in Paris in January. It was entitled People, Book, Land, The 3,500 Year Relationship of the Jewish People and the Land of Israel. It was removed and it was discontinued because the opposing forces and the UN councils argued that it would delay, if not eliminate, any prospects for peace. There in the midst of Israel is Jerusalem, the city of peace. But true peace is only and ultimately found through Jesus Christ. And geopolitically speaking, will occur when our Lord returns. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. But like Israel, so like us in this regard, we're not meant to be mere reservoirs of truth, but true channels of grace, telling our neighbors, telling our friends, telling our co-workers about what God has done through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Behold, it is coming. And it will be brought about, declares, you see, the Lord God. So as a result of the Gog-Magog war, Israel's opponents are defeated and God's name is made known. This month is the 66th birthday of Israel regaining nation. 1948, May of 1948, which means there may even be some in this service, as there were in first and will be most likely in third too, who can even remember when it gained, regained statehood, nationhood, and the wars that immediately erupted as a result in 1948, or the Suez War in 1956 uh, via Nasser, the leader of Egypt on through the Yom Kippur War, and so on. But all these are preludes of what is still to come. And so now, what you and I do is we connect trends with truth, and we take past and we project future, but we allow the sovereign God to network the details and connect the dots, which leads then to a second significant result 
flowing out of verse 9. Down through verse 24. Number two, as a result of the Gog-Magog war, Israel's land is cleansed and God's glory is revealed. So now you're going to ask, but Gary, how then is the land cleansed? Well, we're going to let God answer that. You pick it up in verse 9, and we're informed, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go and make fires of the weapons and burn them. This is Israel's land being cleansed. How? Through the seizure of weapons in verse 9 and verse 10. Where the fire is set in verse 9 and the fuel then is provided in verse 10. In verse 9, they'll make fires of the weapons and burn them. Shields, bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears. And they'll make fires of them for seven years, we're told. Why? Answer. So that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the, out of the forests. For they will make their fires of the weapons. And they will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. Which means then that the fortunes are reversed. And the sovereign one breaks in at this point. And though the opposing forces assume that this is based upon their strategic power, Israel is assured based upon God's sovereign promise. And God's promise defeats political power each and every time. So you look at that, and now you see they begin to cleanse their land through the seizure of the weapons in verses 9 and 10. But furthermore, through the burial of Gog in verse 11 through 16. And I find this amazing, don't you? Ponder the compassion in the next verse. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel. Do you see the incongruity there? One of the major opponents to Israel's survival, God is choosing to bury in the land where he buried Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. If this is not evangelistic, what is? If this does not depict the sovereignty of God, what does? But furthermore, they don't torch these bodies. They provide proper burial. You see, the Judeo-Christian ethic rooted, for example, in the way in which God buried Moses in a mountainous region. Likewise, care for and dispose of the body in a very proper way, even with one who is their adversary. On that day, I will give Gog a place for burial in Israel. And I look at that, and I then allow for my mind to jump into current events. Among the organizations funding and distributing physical and emotional aid to hundreds of thousands of Syrians 
flooding into northern Jordan to get away from serious ongoing civil war is Israel. An Israeli humanitarian group with years of experience in Africa and other regions. In Jordan, you see the groups buying and assembling large sacks of essential goods that are passed out to Syrian refugees daily, even though the Syrian government has been opposed to Israel. In an interview, listen to this. We don't announce with trumpets that we're Israeli. One of the Israel aid workers told the Jewish telegraphic agency, there's no need for that. Once you let that cat out of the bag, everything starts to blow up. Quote, unquote. Do you see the dignity here? Do you see the respect here? And it's a reminder at a very personal level how we are to bless those who curse us and so on. And so in this next verse on that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers, east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. Now you and I know that there are tremendous numbers of tourist groups and so on that go through that region and through that very region that I'm now reading to you. Furthermore, it will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Haman Gog, and for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to, what? Cleanse the land. As a result of the Gog-Magog war, Israel, second of all, its, its land is cleansed, and we're taking that from the scriptures in verse 12. All the people of the land will bury them, which means then this is going to have to be a unified effort. There will have to be a well-organized political approach to administratively making this occur. All the people of the land will bury them. And it will bring them renown on that day. It will draw attention to the humanitarian nature of the people. But there's something more significant that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. Mark that word glory. It keeps coming back at us. They'll set apart men to travel through the land regularly. Set apart means most likely there has been a commission that has been established for the sake of proper treatment of the bodies. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly, and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. Comprehensive final evaluation. When these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Hamanah is also the name of the city, which, by the way, when you study your Old Testament, knows that the Moabites there were involved, of course, in the sacrifice of children in the very region. Thus shall they cleanse the land. And you say, okay, God, the land is cleansed. How then is the glory revealed? Well, for the sake of time, allow for your eyes now to flip down to verse 21. And notice what God says here in this 39th chapter. And I will set my glory among whom? The nations. Do you see how evangelistic this is? 
how purposeful this is. And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. Now, this in itself is purposeful. He's saying, I'll set my glory among the nations in verse 21. But in verse 22, you and I are told something about the house of Israel. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. Really shaking them up. Because even though Israel is now celebrating its 66th birthday, it is still by and large either religiously unbelieving or secularly unbelieving. Something has to happen. And verse 23, the nations, plural, shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the land of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. And you can track that historically, how that took place, such as in 722 B.C., or 586 B.C. via the Babylonians, or 70 A.D. via the Romans. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. But all of that is past tense. He has said, I will set my glory, you see, my glory, not theirs, among the nations. Now, we have examined two significant results thus far on this Memorial Day weekend where people typically are thinking about battles and the likes. And what we have seen thus far is that the opponents are defeated, number one, and God's name is then made known. And the land is cleansed, number two, and God's glory is revealed. All this is about God's sovereignty. So now you and I are prepared for this third significant result that unfolds, beginning in verse 25 through the end of this chapter. The thirdly, as a result of the Gog Magog war, Israel's fortunes are restored and God's holiness is vindicated. Now let's start with Israel's fortunes. Keep tracking with me, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. It's God who's doing this. It's not their political skill, not their military power. I will restore the fortunes, and interestingly enough, he says, of Jacob. And you say, well, I remember reading about Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob was renamed Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, like 12 tribes. One of those sons, interestingly enough, was caught off into Egypt. And then the other Israelites were, due to famine, uh, the other brothers went to Egypt, and there they resided. And you find this tremendous tension between the Israelites, who are the people of the land, and those who are outside of the land, even to this very day, where it seems as though Brooklyn, New York, is almost second in population, Jewish-wise, only to the land of Israel itself. 
I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for their name, my holy name. And you say to me, you know, Gary, on the 66th birthday celebration of the reinstatement and the reestablishment of Israel to nation status, is there a particular verse that I can turn to to say that's got 1948 written all over it? Glad you asked. Look at Ezekiel 36 and track with me, in particular, verse 23 and how it inches into verse 24. Just a few chapters back. Now, in verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their very eyes. Next to this next verse, simply write 1948, and then do a Google search this afternoon and read all about it. Because verse 24 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land which is exactly what happened in the last century. That's your God. He's sovereign. Why won't you want to put your trust in that kind of sovereign one? If he can do this on the macro level, he can do it at the micro level of our own personal everyday life experience. So back to verse 25, and thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. Have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Be jealous for my holy name. And then they shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land, which they long to do, with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the people, I gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. So the fortunes are restored, comma, and God's holiness is what? Vindicated. Because right there in that verse, you have been informed, and I've been informed, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. This is not going to be in some private room. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land, and I'll leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel declares the Lord God. And when Jesus, in John chapter 3, was talking to Nicodemus, the theologian of the Old Testament, Jewish, and Nicodemus' eyes almost were rolling back when Jesus talked about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and what he can do, and what does it mean to be born again, Jesus, in essence, took him right back to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel spoke of the Spirit. When I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God, and a major installment happened in Acts 2, of course, on the day of Pentecost. 
So now you pull these three significant results together, and you say, do I have a foundation, a, a foundation to start with, to understand these things? I think you do. Look at this verse that appears on the screen. It's the promise that was originally given to Abraham, who both Jew and Arab point to, interestingly enough. But it's of Abraham's line via Isaac and via Jacob, where you and I are informed, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. But now we look at the Gog-Magog battle in light of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And out of this, this is why God speaks of the nations, knowing God as a result of this battle. Which takes me to an interesting conversation that former... Congressman Tony Hall had. He'd been appointed by the president to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Agency based in Rome. And in his gentle, understated way, Hall urged the religious people of both parties, Democratic and Republican, not to be shy about bringing faith to the office and letting it be part of who they are in public. In fact, he described the trip he took to an Islamic country where he was greeted by the United States ambassador at the airport. Congressman Hall, said the unnamed ambassador. I'm going to protect the guilty here. I just want to remind you that you are in a Muslim country. Please don't talk about religion particularly about Christianity, even more so about Jesus, he knew his faith. Or it could really set back what we're trying to accomplish here. Hall said he just nodded politely, but when they arrived at the office of the king, he was asked by the king why he had come to the country. I would like to be your friend, Congressman Hall replied. And I would like our countries to be friends. And I would like to invite you to the National Prayer Breakfast in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we're told the U.S. ambassador went pale. But the king got excited. He slapped his knee and said, this is remarkable. You have come all this way to be my friend to talk to me about Jesus. That is wonderful. My mother used to talk to me a lot about Jesus when I was a child. We should talk more about Jesus. And then the king turned to the ambassador and said, and why don't you talk more about Jesus? Well, this foundational verse that all-encompassing describes the tensions worldwide even today, finds a definitive statement in Galatians 3, verse 8, where Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is gospel saying, in you shall the nations be blessed, quote, unquote. In other words, you've just spotted gospel in your Older Testament. And now what you've done is pulled past, present, and future together, truth and trends together, put the Middle East in proper perspective over the course of these two Sundays, and realized again, God is God. And he loves you. And he sovereignly sent Jesus to fight that ultimate battle on the cross. Died for your sins. And then raised Christ to validate his glory to the nations. Let's stand together. so, Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, we rightly respect the way in which lives were laid down for our political freedom. Throughout this world, lives are being laid down as one nation fights another and one group battles another. But in the ultimate sense of the word, we praise you because there was one who laid down his life for the many, Jesus Christ, died for our sins, not for political freedom, for eternal freedom, for we are freed from the penalty of sin. So we thank you and we praise you, Father, that the ultimate battle has already been fought and won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which we give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.